0: Thank you for that wonderful communion message. Grant, thanks for the solo. Um, I'm going to get off my notes here for a minute, which I don't like to do at the beginning, but I'm going to anyway. As I study this Sermon on the Mount, and we go through it, you know, throughout the last several months, I think one of the most convicting aspects of it is when you pick out a subject and you study it and it forces you to start looking inwardly. And I know when I was, before I started preaching, um, I'd come and I'd hear a message and and I'd reflect on it for a couple hours throughout the day and maybe maybe the week, but I can tell you the, the more time I spend thinking about a subject that's in the Sermon on the Mount, whether it be the Beatitudes the fulfillment of the law, the salt, the light, the anger, the lust, it doesn't matter what the subject is. When I study and I look at it and I look at the Greek words and I look at the Hebrew teaching, it just forces me to become more sanctified. It forces me to, be, to, to really look inwardly. And I want to encourage everyone here, you don't have to be up in the pulpit to get deep in the Word. You don't, have, you don't have to give a presentation. You can, you can look in here and you can study the word and you can understand what he means when it comes to your oaths or turning the other cheek or giving them your cloak. And uh, last week, we talked about this, this concept of finalizing the concept of tithes and offerings. And I have studied that subject probably around 15 years uh, since I really got into church leadership and church politics and all the stuff that goes along with that. And as I studied out the subject, I felt like I became fairly fluent in my understanding of what the Old Testament teaches. And I kind of came to four conclusions over the last 15 years, which I tried to wrap, wrap up last week, and hopefully I did a job where you remember it. If you weren't here, you didn't have to come to the sermon to hear the, the final uh, conclusion today was that the first thing is that God God owns everything. Every, everything belongs to Him. We see that where it says cattle on a thousand hills, the stars in the sky, even our own bodies. And we're, we're stewards. We are simply stewards of what He has allowed us to manage. It's His. He allows us to manage it. He expects us to manage it. Uh, he's watching us manage His belongings. The second is that when we do give, which it is commanded to give, uh, we're, we're supposed to give from our hearts. It, it, I, he wants, he even says God loves a cheerful giver. That's God's goal is for us to give cheerfully. And I believe that God is much more concerned about the intent of the offering than the percentage of the offering. Um, we learned also last week and the week before that tithing, uh, the concept of tithing was food and product of the land. And it was given for specific purposes for the, the Levitical priesthood and, the, and the, uh, the poor as well as the celebrations and the festivals. And it was a requirement for those that were under the law. It was not something optional. You were required to give those things under the law of God. And because we are no longer under the law of Moses but we're under the law of love and grace, the concept of the tithe is, is changed into a concept of giving. And I have a lot of people come to me and say, well, my parents are, you know, type of people that grew up um, giving a very specific percentage of their income, and I have people that ask me often, do you think it's wrong that I give 10%? I said, no, I don't think it's wrong to give 10% at all. I don't think it's wrong if you gave 5%. I don't think it's wrong if you give 90%. It's what the Spirit leads you to give, and as you see in... Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, their giving was not done honestly. And so the giving is between you and God the Father. That's the responsibility we have. It's between you and God. It, 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 I don't believe in giving, uh, you know, having come up here and saying, hey, you know, Steve gave this much, and Peg gave this much, and you know, Ryan gave this much, and Brian and Brooke That's not how it works, and that's not how it should work. It's between you and God, and that's all that matters. So I hope that that gives you a little bit of an understanding of where I sit again. um, I believe that we are to be wise in our offerings, and our givings, and if that is a percentage that you choose, that's between you and God. If it's a lump sum that you just feel called one day by the Spirit to give, that's between you and God. God cares about this, and we see that through the entire Sermon on the Mount. It's that there's always back to this heart issue. It's always back to this, this, where is your spirit? Where is your soul? Where is your heart? Where is your desire? Uh, where is your intent? And that's what we see throughout the entire New Testament, and specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. So this morning, we're past the, doing the, your righteous deeds, the almsgiving and the prayer, and, or the almsgiving uh, and, and, uh, and the offering. We're, we're past that, giving to the needy, and we've, we've transferred into this concept of prayer. Now, I've got to confess to you, I've, I've always felt like prayer was not my strong suit. Like there are parts in my faith where I feel like I'm fairly mature. And then there's prayer. And there's, there's people that I know that are just prayer warriors. And like, what, what'd you do today? Well, I prayed. Well, yeah, this lasts like a minute or two, but what'd you do the rest of the day? Well, I just prayed all day. And that, that's, for me, that's kind of a difficult concept, and so I don't feel like it's a strong suit of mine in my faith. So my prayers, and I'm just speaking to me personally, you all have to decide and, and think about what your prayer life is like, but my prayer life consists of basically three things. My entire prayer life can be summed up in three things. It's the giving thanks, praying for wisdom, and acknowledging God. Those are the, the three Main aspects when I when I got to thinking about okay, what does my prayer life consist of? Because you know it does say in first Thessalonians five, sixteen through eighteen it says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So we're told to pray without ceasing, or pray continually. That word ceasing means continually and without omission. It's a constant prayer. And that word pray simply means to pray to God, to supplicate, which means to beg for earnestly or to beg humbly. That's what the word pray means. It means to petition, to make a request, to worship, to invoke, to call for. That's what the word pray means. And so we're told to do this without ceasing and continually. So I looked at my own prayer life and the giving thanks is like the first main aspect of my prayer life. And maybe some of you can resonate with this. Maybe this is your prayer life as well. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But my prayer life consists of, one, giving thanks. Before a meal, we give thanks. Thank you, God, for this food. Uh, thank you for for watching over my parents as they drove safely uh, from a funeral back home. Uh, thank you for watching over my children. Thank you for safety. Thank you for health. Thank you for work. It's just giving thanks to God for all that He continually provides us with. And the second thing that I pray most often about is for wisdom. I, I pray for situations, God, hey, I'm, I'm at a loss here. I don't understand what I should do. I've got this situation at hand, and I need to understand biblically, spirit-led, how I should react here. And 100% of the time, when I pray that earnestly, God, how should I react according to Your Word, a Bible verse or a teaching from Jesus or a teaching from the Psalms or something will come into my head at some point and I'll, I'll, I'll get a revelation from God. But I ask God, I pray for wisdom. And we're called to ask for wisdom from God. He, he, he encourages us. And then he says, and when you get it, don't doubt. Believe that you got it from God. And there's a bike trail, fittingly called Holy Cross, up on the lunch loop bike the loops. It's about a seven mile loop from parking lot to parking lot. And if you're in really, really good shape, you can do it in under 40 minutes. Um, if you're in decent shape, you can do it in, in about 50 minutes, 45 minutes. If you're not in shape at all, it takes you just about an hour. And there are times when I, I've, I've got a situation at work and one time in particular a situation at church that was heavy on my heart and I didn't know what to do. I had no like solid understanding of what should be my reaction or how should I approach the situation. So I went on Holy Cross, and I put in David Crowder in my earbuds, who's a Christian musician, and I just decided to pedal as fast as I could for 45 minutes. And I was going to try and beat my time of 40 minutes, but I was in the parking lot, and I said, Lord, I'm asking you to give me wisdom and how I should respond in this situation. What should I do? I put on my earbuds, jumped on my bike, turned on Strava, and I just started pedaling as fast as I could. And I can walk within 100 feet to 150 feet of the place that I got complete clarity. And I wasn't even thinking about the situation when it happened. And that happened three times over the course of a couple years when I was in a pickle and I needed God to answer a question for me and I got on my bike and I put in my earbuds and I rode and I was just going hard and about 15 minutes into it, I'm thinking about the solution or thinking about the problem. And then about 20 minutes later, I'm getting kind of tired and exhausted and then I hit the downhill. So now I'm having to focus on the trail in front of me so I don't get, have to get stitched up again. And I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling, I'm pedaling. And then all of a sudden, it's like, boom, God reveals it to you. That's another part of my prayer is praying for wisdom. And he responds when we ask. And the third part of my prayer life has been is just acknowledging. I mean, yes, we give thanks and we ask for wisdom, but sometimes the bulk of my prayer life is sitting on the side of a hill or sitting on a rock ledge and looking out over the valley or looking out over some quakies with binoculars and just stopping and seeing, you know, a, a spider web floating through the sky and just thinking, wow, God. You're amazing. Your creation is amazing. Your stars are amazing. Your universe, your animals, my children, everything that you've created and spoken into existence, all the good that we see is from you. It is from the works of your hands. You are awesome. And that's that basically makes up my entire prayer life. And it's not without ceasing. It's not constant. Brain gets going different directions, and all of a sudden you run into an issue, and you go, oh, I should go to the Father and ask for help here. So, this morning we're going to look at the whole concept of prayer, and for me, the easiest way to, you know, like when I first started in construction and I was doing uh, tile jobs, I had never done a tile job before, and so I, this guy asked me, who's our old preacher, he said, can you do tile? And I said, yeah, I can do tile. He said, great. Give me a quote. So I gave him a quote and got the quote back, said, looks good. When can you start? I said, I can start tomorrow. He says, great. So I went to the library. It was before the internet. And I went to the library, and I got a book on how to lay tile because I'd never laid tile before. There was the how to. was I think it was how to lay tile for dummies is the one that I got, but it was the how to's and the how not to. There was a what not to do and a what to do. So we have that, not for dummies, but for Christians, lambs, sheep. We have that on how to pray. We have a how to and a how not to pray in Matthew chapter 6. So go to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to start out in Matthew 6, verse 5. Jesus just got done talking about getting rewarded for being uh, giving humbly and, and, and not doing your acts of righteousness so other people can see you. And then in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, he says, and when you pray, I love when he says, and when you pray, this is like a, the same thing on fasting, when you fast, when you pray. It's not, it's not something where, we're like, if you decide to do it, it's assumed by Jesus that we're going to do this. So he says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. We've looked at the word hypocrite, and it's just a play actor. It's the one that had the mask on their face that on the stage, they're one thing, and they take it off, and they're another. And Jesus is saying, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. This is how not to pray. Do not pray like the hypocrites do, to be seen by others standing in the corners. Now, uh, William Barclay is, I've mentioned him several times. He writes this. Certain faults had crept into the Jewish habits of prayer, keeping in mind the audience or a bunch of Jewish people. It is to be noted that these faults are by no means peculiar to Jewish ideas of prayer. They can and do occur anywhere, meaning what he's about to say isn't just for the Jewish people. We all can fall into this kind of struggle when it comes to praying, or this fault of how we pray. It is to be noted that they could only occur in a community where prayer was taken with the greatest seriousness. They are are not the faults of neglect, but they are the faults of misguided devotion. So these people were praying in a time and their devotion to God was misguided. They were doing it wrong. The first that we need to look at is called the Shema because prayer became formalized. And there were two things, the daily use of which were prescribed to every Jew. The first one was the Shema. The Shema was the hear, O Israel. And we see that in Deuteronomy. It was the first prayer that the Jewish children would learn. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is why it's so important, I believe, to understand the Old Testament because Jesus refers a lot in the teaching, the Old Testament, Uh, the writers of the New Testament also refer back to uh, Moses and Abraham, which are found in the Old Testament, so it's important to know this stuff. So in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what's called the Shema, and this was the prayer that Jewish children would learn and they would recite twice a day once in the morning once in the evening and they would recite it by heart and the first there was three sections three short passages of scripture that they would recite by heart the first is Deuteronomy 6 verses 4 through 9 it says hear o israel the lord your god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might and these words that i command you today shall be on your heart You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as uh, frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olives, trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I read a couple extra verses, but verses four through nine was the first part of the Shema. The second part of the Shema was Deuteronomy 11, starting in verse 13. Again, this is what the Jewish... People would memorize from childhood on, and twice a day, they would stop what they were doing at a certain time, and they would pray these prayers. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for the land in its season, the early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he shall shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord has given you. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them so long as the heavens are above the earth. And then finally in Deuteronomy or I'm sorry Numbers chapter 15 this is the third section of the Shema that they, would he, that they would read or recite daily, which they had obviously memorized. They didn't carry around the scrolls with them. Numbers 15, verses 37 through 41. Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. These are the three sections, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but these are the three sections that Jewish people would memorize and say twice a day. There are those that love the Shema, who repeated it with reverence and adoration and love, but inevitably there were still more who gabbed their way through it and went their way, gabbled their way through it and went their way. The Shema had every chance of becoming a vain repetition which men mumbled through like some spell or incantation. We Christians are but ill-qualified to criticize for everything that has been said about formally gabbling through the Shema can be said about grace before meat in many a family." I'm going to read that again because you might have lost me. The Shema had every chance, these three passages, which they were memorized and they spoke daily, the Shema had every chance of becoming a vain repetition, which men mumbled through like some spell or incantation. We Christians are but ill qualified to criticize for everything that has been said about formally gabbling through the Shema can be said about grace before meat in many a family. Getting into a habit of talking to God. Like you mentioned in your homily, Rick. Lord, don't let this become just this habit that we do. Prayer is the same thing. We have prayers in all denominations that people just kind of recite. And it's, it's not from here. It's just something we do to just to kind of check the box. My wife's family, uh, a lot of her family is Catholic. And so when we go to a meal at their house, we say that the prayer, bless us, O Lord, the I gifts we're about to receive from my bounty through Christ our Lord, amen. Right? Jess is shaking her head. How many times have you said that? in your life. Thousands? Bless us the Lord, and these thy gifts we're about to receive from my bounty to Christ our Lord. Amen. Peg? Thousands? I mean, we just, we, and now some of our family members say it with this, like, very respectfully and very reverent way. You can tell that they're thinking about it, and they're not just flippantly getting through and checking the box. They're thinking about what they're saying. Bless us, O Lord. And the the prayer is spot on. Bless us, God, in the gifts that we are about to receive because of the bounty through Christ. Or just blah, 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 blah. And you see the difference. And we see the difference in Protestant prayers, oftentimes. The same prayer before every meal, every time. Father, thank you for this food and please bless it for our use in the hands that prepared it. Please watch over our loved ones that can't be here today. Amen. Rub a dub, let's grub. <laughs> that's oftentimes how people pray. They just are so used to saying the same thing over and over and I feel like some of the best prayers I hear are from people that say, I really don't know how to pray. Well, that's good. That's good. We go to a house dinner sometimes or lunch and someone say hey will you come over from from church and and it's usually getting to know somebody I can remember maybe it was Ryan and Rachel the first time and like well, let's come over for dinner I'm gonna pick on you because we've known each other a long time and, and hey Nate will you will you pray before the meal and depending on who it is I'll say no Ryan it's your house you pray He's like I don't really know how to pray ah sure you do let's pray you pray I'm not gonna pray you pray and the prayer that comes out of his mouth is so reverent and beautiful because there's this like fear of going before the father where you just go ah, I hope I don't screw this up but God thank you for our friends thank you for this food amen and you go amen Thank you for that prayer because it was from here. It was heartfelt. It was going to God. It didn't need to be articulate and beautiful and perfect because God knew you were genuinely thankful for the situation that you were in, whether it be food, friends, family, whatever it was. So how not to pray is just gabble on. But then he says how to pray. In Matthew 5 or 6, when he says, But when you pray, so he says, Don't go, don't, don't go into the street corners to be heard by men and pray in the synagogues and you be seen by others. But I say to you, But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I do not believe Jesus is condemning public prayer here. I don't believe prayer is is required that we go into a private room with just between us and God. Because we see in Acts 2.42, the early church, it says they were addicted or devoted. The word devoted means addicted to. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So it's something that they did as a church body together. They prayed together. So I don't think Jesus is saying here, the example is, you're not allowed to pray in public. I think what he's saying here is when you pray, make sure your heart's right. Make sure it's just not this repetition thing that you're doing just to be seen by other people, like, oh, he's very spiritual, he's very religious. It's you should pray. When you pray, you go directly to God, you speak to God, which we're going to talk about that in a little bit. And then he says, then he says in verse 7, and when you pray. Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Now, this is a true story, and I think this is appropriate. I don't necessarily know if this is exactly what Jesus was talking about, but this is how I felt when I was in this situation. I was driving back from Telluride, Colorado, to Grand Junction. I was sitting in the middle in a bench truck seat, and I had two buddies on either side of me, George and Dennis. George is on the driver's side. He's driving home. Dennis is in the, he's about 6'4". He's in the passenger seat, and I'm sitting in the middle with the stick shift between my legs. Everybody hates that position. It's uncomfortable. I was the smallest guy, so I had to sit between the two guys. So we're driving along, and we hit just outside of Kelowna, Colorado, and we're heading back to Grand Junction. We're heading into Montrose, and on Kelowna, on the left-hand side, there is a cemetery. We hit the cemetery line, and it was like somebody pushed play on a movie or a song. And there was these repetitious prayers. And it was, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be, thee, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Our, uh, Hail Mary, Mother full of grace. And then it was, Glory be God in the highest. There was three prayers that were said in a row. And these guys were in sync. I mean, I'm talking like it was perfect. It was like synchronized praying. Like the Olympics synchronized swimming. It was synchronized praying. It was perfect. They were together, and they did it over and over and over. And it was about two minutes of just exact, perfect prayer. And I was sitting there in the middle of this, these two guys like this. I didn't know what to think because it wasn't like this prayer that I was used to growing up in my family. It wasn't this prayer of, you know protection or whatever, it was a perfectly timed prayer. So at the end, I, I said, uh, I wasn't a Christian at the time, so forgive me, but I want to tell the story, right? I said, what the hell was that? And they're like, what? I said, what was that? They said, that's the prayer that we use when we're going in front of a cemetery to release people from purgatory. I said, oh. Oh. What's purgatory? And that just opened up a lot of conversation. But, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that with their many, they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Before you even ask God, He knows what you need. In the book of James, before we get into how we should pray, we're going to do another one where we kind of got to be careful. In James chapter 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Again, it's this going to God and asking Him for things, but oftentimes we ask God for the wrong things. We ask God to give us a job promotion so we can afford to send our kids to summer camp for two months. Or we ask God for a car promotion so we can buy a new vehicle or we can move or whatever it is but we're asking for the wrong things and when we look at the scriptures it says and when you pray do not heap up empty words for they think that they will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows what you need before you even ask him this has always been something for me that I've struggled with I'll confess to you if God already knows what I want no wait If God already knows what I need, why do I pray? God's all-knowing, right? He understands what's needed. He understands that this person needs healed. He understands that this person needs uh, financial help. He understands that this person's hungry. So why do I pray? Why do I get in communion with God? Oh, did I just answer my question? I might have. Why would I ask for something that I need when God already knows it? So in Matthew chapter six, or, uh, 6, verse 9, he says, pray then like this, our Father, you guys all know this, this is like the one prayer that we learn at the beginning of any of our Christian walks when we're little kids. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. I when I read this passage I find it interesting how simple it is. It's just it's 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 basically just statements and facts. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that he is there and we are here. Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. Beautiful is his name. Powerful and mighty and reverent is our is his name. Have you ever heard people begin a prayer like hey homie? Have you? Or what's up Jesus? Have you heard that? I have. And it made me nervous. It made me nervous. It's like going and talking to someone that's just like your golfing buddy. <laughs> or your hunting buddy. Like, hey, yo, what's up, Brian? Uh, I know you created the universe and all, but can we talk about something really deep here? That's When it says, hallowed be your name. Reverent is your name. The word translated hallowed is part of the Greek verb hagiast. Which means it's connected with hagios, which means to treat a person or a thing as hagios. Hagios is the word which is translated holy, but the basic meaning is different or separate. A thing which is hagios is different from other things. A person who is hagios is separate from other people. The temple is hagion; it's different than other buildings. The altar is hagios; it exists for a purpose different from the purpose of ordinary things. God's day. Is hagios because it's different from other days. A priest is hagios because he is separate from other men. So then, this petition means let God's name be treated differently from all other names. Let God's name be given a position which is absolutely unique. So when he says, Our Father in heaven, you're up here, we're down here. Reverent is your name, unique is your name, fearful is your name. So when we pray, when we go to God, the repetitive prayers, I believe, is standing before God and saying, this isn't that holy. This isn't that important. This isn't important enough for me to actually make effort in talking to you in a way that I fear you and honor you and revere you and respect you and love you. Is that making sense? Hallowed be your name. Reverent is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom, king's domain. Not our kingdom, but his kingdom. Your will be done. God's will, not our will. Give us this day our daily bread. This has been a debated part of it. I think some people believe it's talking about daily bread as far as our sustenance every day. And then other people believe it's talking about the Lord's Supper. I think it's referring to our daily sustenance of food. I think that's what God's talking about. Give us this day. Provide us today what we need today. And then I believe next week we're going to be talking about this concept of forgiveness. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And this is a whole nother subject, so I won't dive into it a ton or, any, or very little. But if you look at forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespass. Now, this is a plug for Brian for next week. Sorry, I guess we just decided what you're preaching on next week. Is this concept of forgiveness? And I think it's pretty important to recognize that Jesus said for if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your father forgive your trespasses there's a concept here that I'm pretty sure each one of us need to deal with at some point it's harboring pain it's harboring anger it's harboring unforgiveness And some of us have completely forgiven anybody that's wronged us. And others in here, and I guarantee it, there's people in here that have not yet forgiven someone that needs forgiven. Even if they ask for it or not. There's no stipulation here. Whether or not they ask for it, we're called to forgive. That's it, I won't preach your message anymore. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's God's providence in protecting our hearts from the evil one and his schemes. When I said at the beginning of the message that prayer is not like my strong suit, if you will, or my, my best attribute of being a Christian, I feel like prayer is pretty simple to me. It's it's when we go to God and say, God, I need help. God, I need help. And I can't figure it out on my own. God, I need help with my pride. I need help with my unforgiveness. I need help with my struggle and genuinely believing, reverently going before Him and asking the King of the universe, the Father, to say, help us. That seems simple to me. Like, we have the most amazing advocate, the creator of the universe, that we can go directly to. And it's not done for show. It's done sometimes in secret, because that's where it needs to be done. It needs to be in a closet by yourself where you're sitting there and saying, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Please help me because I can't get through it alone. Lord, help me understand the Word of God because I can't understand it. It's not making sense to me. Please give me your Spirit and intercede for me. Or the prayer may be, Lord, thank you. Thank you for life. Thank you for my family. Thank you for my kids. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my food. Thank you for the fact that I can walk. Thank you that I can talk. Thank you that I can breathe. Thank you for the next breath I just took because it belongs to you. That is prayer. That's prayer. It's not just this repetitive thing we're just going to do and say and get out of the way because that means nothing. It says they have received their reward already. But when you go to God and you can get on your knees before Him and say, Lord, thank you, or Lord, I need something here. I need wisdom. I need guidance. I believe that's the prayer, the heart of the matter that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. He keeps it so simple when he says, recognize God's in heaven. Recognize that his name is holy. Recognize that his kingdom is more important than our kingdom. Recognize that our daily sustenance comes from him. And ask him, Lord, continue to feed us, please. Forget my sins, Lord, as I forgive other people of their sins. And Lord, help me avoid temptation. Those are the prayers that God is saying, and and they can't be done with just this repetition prayer that's not heartfelt, because it has no weight. The weight comes in how we approach the King of Kings. When Jesus died on that cross for us, he opened up this pathway. Like before there was this, there was this curtain, and we, and we couldn't go to the Holy of Holies. We had to go through a high priest to get to the Holy of Holies, to get to God directly. We had to offer the offerings, and we had to offer the sacrifice, we had to offer the tithes to get as a, as, as a, as a right to go to God. And Jesus tore that curtain down, and it says, I think in Ephesians, he calls that curtain the dividing wall of hostility is what he calls it in Ephesians chapter 2 or 3. I think it's 3. No, it's 2. The dividing wall of hostility. He tore it from top to bottom and that dividing wall of hostility was the the temple curtain which was 5 inches thick that kept us from going into the temple directly to God and we had to go through somebody else to get there. And Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2 he says in 1 Timothy chapter Chapter 2, I'll just read it, or quote it. For there is one mediator between God and man, or there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. That is our middleman as we go to the Father. Every one of us can go directly to God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Every one of us can stand or kneel before God and say, Jesus help forgive, help love, help strengthen, give us wisdom, give me guidance, give me conviction, give me courage to be who you've called me to be. And the fact of the matter is, every single one of us are going through issues in life. I know some pretty, what I would consider perfect people, (laughs) and I mean that seriously. I know some people that I consider people that I look up to that are very mature in their faith, they're very real in their faith, they're very active in their faith, and they have struggles. They have life. But my guess is, if I were to ask them, at what point does the pain that you're going through start subsiding a little bit, and, 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 and at what point can you hand it over? At what point do you hand it over? And if I had to guess, the response would be, we take it to God. <laughs> we, we go to the Father. So, my prayer for you My prayer for you is that when you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites do. When you pray, give thanks, ask God for wisdom, recognize who God is, have some have reverence that you've never had before when you are going and speaking to the King of Kings, because He's listening. He is listening. I can tell you from example of when I have prayed and I said, God, I I can't say how many times I sit in that back room before I preach when I feel completely ill-prepared and I say, God, I don't think I'm ready to preach today. I feel completely clueless. I don't know what I'm going to say. Please take the words that are coming out of my mouth and change them so people can understand what I'm about to say. And I'll get done and I'll say to Brenda, man, that was the worst sermon I've ever preached and then I'll have three people text me. What great sermon, Nate Man, that you spoke right to me. I'm like, what? It's like God changes it because He can. He can hit the hearts of people as He needs to and as He wants to, if, if it, people are willing. Prayer is powerful, it's effective, it works. But just like our giving, if you pray with the wrong intent, the giving is worthless. It means nothing to God. It's got to be right here. The prayer has to come from here. So, God bless you guys. I'm gonna be gone for a little bit. I'm taking Grant fishing for his birthday. Uh, we're gonna be gone for a couple weeks, but please pray for our safety. All right. I don't think we, we did communion already, Rick. Thank you for that. And Steve, you're gonna, Steve and Jess, do worship.